Last time we saw Zacharias serving in the temple and an angel appeared to him and told him, gave him some good news. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, you've been praying for a child all these years. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son and this son is going to be great. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zacharias doesn't believe him. And uh, the angel says, you know, Zacharias, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God, and I've come here to give you this good news, and you don't believe me? And so Zacharias was struck mute until the child was born, and he couldn't speak. The Lord correcting him. And then we saw Mary, the angel coming to Mary and telling her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, this miracle that would happen. And Mary said, replied, not in unbelief, but she, she replied, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And we spoke about how that's it. That's our prayer. Lord, let it be done unto me according to your word. Mary didn't understand the message. She didn't have a full comprehension of how it was going to happen or what was happening. But she just wanted the Lord's will to be done in her life. So she said, Lord, you, whatever you've said, let it be done to me according to your word. She, wanted, desired, she desired God's will for her life. And we know the what. We know what God desires because we read it in his word. Every time we pick up the Bible, we know what God desires in our lives. He knows, we know what he desires us to be, and we know what he desires us to do. The question is how. How do we do it? How do I accomplish what God requires of my life? How do I do it? And the answer is that prayer. Let it be done to me according to your word. I read it. And I realize I can't do it. I'm, not, I'm incapable of accomplishing this. I, can't, I can do nothing without you, Lord. I can't do it, but let it be done to me according to your word. It's got to be a work of the Spirit. We read it and we know what God desires, but he brings about the final, the final thing. May it be done unto me according to your word. So we're at, we're at verse 39 in Luke chapter 1. So Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. She goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is also expecting. And they have a lot to talk about. And Zacharias has been silenced this whole time. He's been mute. And Mary walks into the house. It says in verse 40, she entered and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So she goes in and she sees Zachariah and Elizabeth. And she says to Zachariah, maybe she says, Zachariah, what do you say? And he said, very funny, Mary. You're a riot. She walked in in verse 41, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. You know, why would an unborn child leap for joy in the presence of the yet-to-be-born Jesus? The child isn't even born yet. It's leaping for joy. The baby's leaping for joy at the presence of Jesus. Because in Luke 1.15, it says about John, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
So even before he was born, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy, love, and peace. So he already has that joy when he hears the voice of Mary. And he knows that the Messiah is soon to come. He leaps for joy. And joy is a recurrent theme throughout the whole Bible. It's God's desire. And the Bible always shows us our need for joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Without joy, we can do nothing. Without the joy of the Lord, can't even get out of bed in the morning. John said in 1 John, I write this, that your joy may be full. You know, if we knew the full extent, if we had a perfect understanding of the grace of God and realized it fully and had full knowledge of the grace of God, we would be leaping for joy constantly if we really knew. John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. A lot of happy things happen in this life that we should be thankful to the Lord for. And a lot of depressing things also happen in this life. But God does not desire that we be, go crawling through life oppressed and depressed. So these things are written that our joy may be full. God wants us to have joy. He wants us to be rejoicing. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And those four words are something that Jesus said a lot to people. Be of good cheer. He said it to those who were afraid, with those who were fearful, those whose sins he forgave, those who needed forgiveness for their sins, those who he healed. He said, be of good cheer. Paul says in the Bible, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. In Nehemiah, in chapter 8, they gather all the people together and they read from the law. And it says that when they read from the law, the people wept because they heard the words of the law because they realized we haven't accomplished this. We haven't done it. And we can't do it when they heard the words of the law. And, to, and also, to be truthful, we don't even want to do it. We don't have the heart to do it. But when they understood the words that were declared to them, Nehemiah said to them, do not weep because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it must have been a message of faith and grace that they heard that day because it says when they heard the law, they wept. When they understood, then they had a party. Verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Mary, again, she didn't understand or comprehend the message. She just took God's word. She just took God literally at his word. She just believed what God said. We know that in Genesis, in the garden, there was that hissing voice that spoke to Eve. Did God really say, planning doubt? And we hear that voice sometimes. You know, we have doubts when we deal with doubts. And with that, little, that hissing voice speaks to us and says, did God really say? Is the Bible really true? Is all this Christian stuff really real? And he hasn't changed since the garden. That's his MO. He's constantly saying that. You know, we tell the kids in Sunday school that the biggest lie in the world is this. Did God really say? In other words, the Bible isn't true. And we tell them that they're going to be hearing that their whole lives. And they're going to be hearing it in many different ways. Through entertainment, through all sorts of ways. They're going to be hearing that message, that hissing voice. 
did God really say? And sometimes we can hear that voice when trials and hard circumstances cause us to hear it. And the enemy whispers to us, did God really say, is all this real? Look what you're going through. Is what God said real? Did he really say that? You know, when we feel spiritually dry, when we feel alone, because we feel that we're the only ones. We're the, I'm the only one in my family who believes. I'm the only one at work who believes. I'm the only one in my neighborhood who believes. And we feel alone. And that voice whispers to us, did God really say, is all this really real? When we compare ourselves with others, others who seem so confident in their faith, and we feel that we're not there, we hear that voice. Did God really say, is it true? But if we take the time to prayerfully and thoughtfully spend time absorbing the word of God, that hissing voice is, is vanquished. It's gone. When we open our Bibles and we read God's word and God speaks to it, that voice is silenced. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we're not in the word, if we're not spending that time with the Lord and he sitting at his feet and hearing his voice, that voice gets louder. And if we continue that voice gets louder, and our response will be, I don't know. Is it really true? I don't know. I'm not sure. And if we drift even further and we hear that voice, our response can be, maybe not, or, or I don't know, or I don't think so. In verse 45, Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. In verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So Mary needed a Savior just like everyone else. She wasn't sinless. She needed to be saved. She refers to God as my Savior. Verse 48, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Those in the future would see the grace of God towards her and learn of God's ways in, in Mary's life, watching her. And this also goes for us, because in Ephesians 2.7 it says, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not just in this age, but also in the ages to come, that in the ages to come, who's ever on earth, whatever peoples are living on the earth, they're going to see, they're going to gain knowledge of God when they see his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. They're going to say, look what he did for these people. When Christ died, they died. When Christ was risen, they were risen. When Christ was seated in the heavenly places, they were seated in the heavenly places in Christ. They're going to see God's grace towards us and learn of God through us. We're going to be like those living epistles to people in ages in the future. Verse 49, Mary says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He who is mighty has done great things for me. She was very humble. She's like, why me? Why would the Lord pick me? I'm his maidservant. But he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. David, when God made his covenant with him, when God promised David, your throne is going to last forever, and I'm going to establish a house for you. Because David wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple. And the Lord said, David, it's not what you're going to do for me, it's what I'm going to do for you. 
and that's the way it is with us. It's not what we're going to do for the Lord. It's what he's going to do for us, the promises he made for us, to us. And we think, you know, why me? Why, why would he do that? And David said in 2 Samuel 7:19, and yet this is, was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, of man, O Lord God? Is this how you treat people? In another place, David would say, what is man that you are mindful of? Why do you even think of us? Your greatness, you are in heaven, you are God, and yet you think of us, that you bow down to us and you listen to us, even to the point of sending your son to die for us. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's a question every Christian asks, I think, sometime or another. Why? Why would you pick me? The Bible says that the Lord chose us and predestinated us to be molded into the image of his son. And I think the question we all ask sooner or later is, why me? Why would you pick me? Why would you choose me and to be predestined to the image of your son? There's a song that was done by uh, Chris Christopherson, and the lyrics are, Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it. So help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I need you so, help me, Jesus, my soul is in your hand. You know, why would you pick me and predestinate me? It doesn't make any earthly sense at all that the Lord would choose me. But it makes heavenly sense because the word glorious is not sufficient to describe our God. Verse 51 he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. In the imagination of their hearts. Anything else other than the absolute truth of the word of God is vain imaginings. 52. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. In Galatians 3.29, Paul says, And if you are Christ, if you are born again, if you are a believer, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are Abraham's seed because of our faith in Christ. The Bible says his mercy endures forever. It doesn't say it just lasts forever, but it endures forever. What does, it, what does God's mercy endure? It endures me. Look at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. How many times did they give the Lord reason to withdraw his mercy, and yet his mercy remained and endured to this day? Verse 56, And Mary remained with her about three months with Elizabeth and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's time Full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So they made signs to his father that he would, have what he would have him called. 
and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Zacharias has been corrected. He's brought, been brought to a place where he believes what God says. The angel said, you're going to have a son and you're going to call him John. And he's brought to that place where he knows what, what God says is going to happen. Zacharias has been corrected. Anything that God does that causes us to draw closer to him and believe what he says is a blessing. Everything is done out of the love and grace of God. Correction and discipline from God is because of his love for us and his faithfulness. He loves us so much he doesn't let us go. It's God's will that we live, and we live by faith, believing what God says and rejoicing in what he has done. If you were to ask Zacharias, boy, you know, that last nine months must have been pretty tough for you. You know, God was kind of harsh, couldn't speak, and there's also uh, mentioned here that maybe he was deaf, too, because they had to make signs to him to find out what he wanted to name the, the boy. And if you were to ask Zacharias, that was pretty rough, and you were cut off from all human contact. I bet you Zacharias would say, those were the best nine months I ever had. There was only one person I could talk to, and only one person could hear me, and that was God. I have never been closer to my God. And that's what correction usually does. It brings us closer than we ever have been before. Trying things happen in our lives, sometimes by circumstances beyond our control, and sometimes it's our own fault. Remember, God only desires one thing, that we have life and that we have it more abundantly. And everything that goes through his hand is for that purpose, everything. The grace, the correction, anything that comes into our lives is for that purpose, that we live. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. So Zacharias has learned to believe that what God says is going to happen. What God says is going to happen will happen. You know, so we have to ask, what, will that, what does that mean for us? What will happen concerning us? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is what God says is going to happen. You know, when we think of our future, God has given us a future. Think, you know, we're, we're going to see the millennial kingdom. We're going to see Jesus reigning on earth. We're going to see the time when the Bible says the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We're going to be alive and, and living in those times in that age and see this. We have a future and a hope. We have a reason to keep going. Because Jesus, in all this, we will receive because Jesus has clothed us in his righteousness. We receive it because he is our peace. In verse 64, it says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Zacharias has been corrected, chastened, hasn't been able to speak for nine months, and his first words are not, you know, Lord, why did you do this to me, or complaining about what happened to him, or grudgingly speak of what happened, but he could speak now, and he just starts praising God, thanking God. 
the chastisement of the Lord had its perfect work. In Hebrews 12.6, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If we endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And you can see the result in Zacharias's life of the chastening that he went through. In Hebrews it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to his son, sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Correction is something that I pray for. I want to be corrected. I not only I want the Lord to correct me, and I want to be corrected. I want to heed that correction because I am very capable of doing some really stupid things, and I need the Lord to correct me. I count on it and pray for it. I could easily be going down the wrong road. I want to be found with Jesus. Verse 65, Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, you know, this, this chastening of the Lord not only brought Zacharias to where he could speak, but where he could prophesy concerning the coming Messiah. He speaks, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of, his, of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation in Israel. Since John was in the wilderness, and a lot of people, some people believe archaeologists have found a city out in the wilderness, what then passed for a city. It was like a village which they unearthed. And they believe that this was occupied by priests who were fed up with what was going on in Jerusalem, with the corruption of the priesthood. So they moved into this little community. And they believed that that's where John was in the wilderness. And there they copied the scriptures. And that's where John received his calling to go out 
and prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, the first dictator emperor of Rome. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. After Julius was assassinated, the empire fell into chaos and started crumbling. There was lawlessness, power grabs, and corruption that was destroying. And different factions were trying to grab power of the empire. One of them was Mark Antony, who with the aid of Cleopatra of Egypt tried to take over the empire. But Augustus prevailed and took control, and he declared himself to be the emperor of Rome. He did impede the disintegration of the Roman Empire for a while, and he brought in a sense of order, which a dictator can do. But Rome was no longer a republic ruled by laws. Now it was being ruled by a dictator who would also demand to be worshipped. So in verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And this wasn't just for numbers to see how many people were there, but it was to more efficiently tax the people. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So they have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph. Mary is pregnant. She's in the last stages of her pregnancy. You know, this was not like a Christmas card. You know, you see some Christmas cards with Mary riding on a donkey with kind of a benign look on her face and Joseph pulling the donkey. And I've seen some with like decorated Christmas trees along the way or Santa flying up in the air above them. Um, this was an 80-mile journey, not the type of thing that you would want to do if you were in the last stages of pregnancy. We know that they were poor, so we don't even know if they had a donkey to ride on. Long way to walk, long way to ride a donkey if you're nine months pregnant. So he went there in verse 5 to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. This was the best night for the world because the Savior is born, our Redeemer, our salvation is born. But for Mary and Joseph, it wasn't the best night for them. It could have been up to date, it's probably the worst night they've ever had. She's nine months pregnant, the city is full with people. And they, got, they have no place to stay. There's no room for them at the end. So you just kind of picture them walking up and down the street, Joseph holding Mary up. You know, maybe Mary was crying. Maybe they were wondering, where is God? You know, because of all this, because of the circumstances we're in now. But in reality, everything was perfectly under control. Everything was going exactly the way God wanted it to go, where his son wanted, to be born, wanted his son to be born, and how he wanted his son to be born. And there was no room for him at the end. There was no room in the whole world for the Son of God, yet he would give his life for that world, for those, that those who believe would not die but live forever. And so this girl, woman, who is somewhere between 12 and 16 years old, delivers her first son, her firstborn son. No midwife, no doctor, she's all alone, with only the word of God that was revealed to her. 
which she kept in her heart, and she wraps them up tight in swaddling clothes and lays the Son of God in a feeding trough, the Savior of the world in a feeding trough. Verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And you know, just as, just as Joseph and Mary, perhaps they sat down in the street wondering what was going to happen and wondering where is God. And sometimes we can get that place. You know, things can happen in our lives, circumstances. And we wonder, you know, where is God? And yet, as with them, so with us. Everything is under control. God has everything under control. You are his child, and he's going to take care of you. And basically, that's the definition of faith. Let God take care of you. So in verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So these shepherds who are about to receive the message that the Savior is born. Someone wrote, As a class of shepherds, they had a bad reputation. They were known as thieves. They were considered unreliable, and they were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. They were on the low end of the social scale. And these are the ones whom God decided chose to reveal them that night to. Verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. No doubt. You know, you can imagine how quiet it was. They're out in the field. They're laying down. they got a fire going. The sheep are laying down. And all of a sudden, bam, this light. The glory of the Lord is shining around them, and there's this angel. Verse 10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Good tidings, in other words, the gospel. The gospel means good news. I bring you good news. And this wasn't announced to the religious leaders or to those in worldly authority, but to those the world would look down on. God chose to, the shepherds. You know, Jesus would be constantly criticized for this throughout his whole life, or throughout his whole ministry. Why does your master associate with sinners? Why does he eat with sinners? Why does he hang around with tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves? Why is he friends to sinners? Because they're the ones he came to save. We are the ones that he came to save. There's a song by Gregory Porter, and the lyrics are, They gild their houses in preparation for the king, and they line the sidewalks with every sort of shiny thing. They will be surprised when they hear him say, Take me to the alley. Take me to the afflicted ones. Take me to the lonely ones who somehow lost their way. Let them hear me say, I am your friend. Come to my table. Rest here in my garden. You will have a pardon. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's why he came. 1 Corinthians Excuse me. 127 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, <coughs> that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The Bible says, 
for what among men is highly thought of is an abomination before God. No flesh can glory in his sight. It's got to be all God's work. He has to get the glory. It's all his work in us. <coughs> all we do is believe and receive it by faith. Verse 11, the angel says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a, city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, all the problems in this world today, all the things, all the insanity that we see going on in our country and in this world. The real need of the world is not a political leader or a political action or social action or programs or more prisons or more demonstrations. The only answer for this world and all the problems, this world needs a savior. And the savior has come. There is born to you this day in the city of David, David a savior who is Christ the Lord. The disease is sin, and Jesus is the cure, the only cure. Verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And people say, you know, peace on earth. When does that start? There has never been peace on earth. There's never been a time when there wasn't, weren't wars going on. Where's this peace on earth? And where's this goodwill towards men? Because people have been killing and fighting each other ever since the beginning. But what the angel was talking about was something better than peace on earth. There has never been peace on earth. He's talking about peace between an individual and God. If there was total peace on earth, if all wars ended, people would still die. But peace with God, there is life after death. The Bible says that we were by nature children of wrath. A person has to make peace with God before they leave this earth. Jesus is our peace. There's nothing we can do. It's what he has done to make peace with God. He is our peace. Goodwill from God. Luke 9.56 says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Verse 15, so it was when the angel, angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that will come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which they were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. There are some people who are just naturally edifying to be around. They, they, they just, you just talk to them and you're edified just by being in their presence. And those are people who keep these things in their heart and ponder them like Mary. We see her doing that all through the Bible, keeping the things that she heard, keeping the things that she saw in her heart, and thinking about them and pondering them. Verse 20, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told them. What was said to them happened. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, 
His name was called Jesus, which means God saves, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of, Mo of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what it says in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. The law after the birth of a, of a child of the firstborn son, the law called for the offering of a lamb. But if the family was too poor to afford a lamb, they offered the birds, two young pigeons or a pair of turtle doves. And in fact, this offering was, this was called the offering of the poor. So that was Mary and Joseph. Verse 25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had revealed to him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was a man of faith, and he believed what the Old Testament said of the Messiah. In Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And faith is always rewarded. He, God promised that he would see the Savior. Verse 27, So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. God's salvation, this person, God's salvation, this baby that was holding in his arms, God's salvation. There is nothing more important, I don't think, than for a person to depart this world in peace, like Simeon said. Now I can depart in peace because I've seen God's salvation. Nothing more important, to leave this world in peace. You know, how, do we, how does a person re leave this world in peace? Only by receiving God's salvation. An unknown poet wrote this concerning Simeon. I fear no sin, I dread no death. I have lived long enough, I have my life. I have longed enough. I have my love. I have seen long enough. I have, my, I have my sight. I have served enough. I have my saint. I have, I have sorrowed enough. I have my joy. Sweet babe, let this psalm serve as a lullaby to thee and for a funeral for me. Oh, sleep in my arms and let me sleep in your peace. Verse 33, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This child is destined for the fall and rising of many. This would be shown in the way that Peter repented, but Judas despaired that one thief on the cross blasphemed and the other believed. 
Jesus is like a magnet that is attractive to some and others are repelled by him. And he tells Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. A personal word to Mary that she was going to have to watch the execution of her eldest son. Verse 36, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and lived with a husband seven years after her from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in, in Jerusalem. She never left the temple, just always stayed in the presence of God. That was her peace, to remain in the presence of God. That was her comfort and her sustenance. She just stayed in the temple night and day, serving God by praying. People who are men and women of prayer are those who are settled. They have built their house on the rock, safe in the storms. Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It just sounds comforting that she just never left the temple, but stayed there night and day, just wanting to be in the presence of the Lord, just being there. In Revelation 3.12, Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name, never having to go out of the presence of God again, per being perfected and being able to stand before God and stay with him and be with him. Verse 39 now when they had performed these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Was Jesus a perfect child? Yes, he was a perfect child. Does that mean he didn't have to be taught or corrected like any two, three, four-year-old? No, but he never sinned. You know, I ask the kids in Sunday school, I tell the kids, Jesus was the only perfect human being, totally holy, never sinned. And whose house do you think all the kids in the neighborhood played at? And all the kids always say, Jesus. I say, why? They say, because he was nice. That's the truth. He was, the per he was perfect, genuinely perfect. People wanted to be around Jesus. Amazingly, especially sinners wanted to be around him. In verse 41, it says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. The historian Tacius estimates the population of Jerusalem to have been at that time about 600,000. Josephus, the historian, said at feast time during these feasts, the population swelled to two million in the city. What a thrill it must have been for a 12-year-old to travel to Jerusalem. Have you ever gone on a trip with your family and another family, and you get to ride with all your friends or your cousins? You know, it must have been a lot of fun for Jesus to be traveling, camping out on the way, running around with his friends, being with his family. 
we don't know, we know next to nothing about Jesus in his early years. This is really the only account that we have of Jesus as a young boy. Luke probably got this account from Mary herself, directly from Mary. So in verse 43 it says, When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. You know, how do you leave a kid behind? Have you ever watched Home Alone? My parents left me once, but I think it was on purpose. Verse 44, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So they went a day's journey, and they're sitting around the fire, and all of a sudden it's like, has anybody seen Jesus? Oh, he's probably running around with his friends. He's probably with his family, you know, with uncle so-and-so or whatever. Verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. You know, this isn't good. We've lost the Messiah. Can you imagine the panic? Three days they're searching for him. And they find him, they find the teachers of the law listening to this child who gave the law to Moses. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Where else would I be except in my father's house? He knew at age of 12, he knew who he was. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. So we are sons and daughters of God. So what is our Father's business that we are to be about? I think it is to be like Mary and keep these things in our hearts and ponder them, growing in the knowledge of God. To be like Simeon and believe what the Bible says about Jesus and see and hold the salvation of God and to leave this world in peace. To be like Anna and be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. To be like the angel and proclaim the good news, the glad tidings, the gospel, that Jesus, the Savior of the world, and that those who seek will find. So, let's pray. Father, we do pray, Lord, we can do nothing without you, Lord. So, Lord, let it be done to us according to your word, that we would be about our Father's business, Lord, growing in our knowledge of you and just being with you, Lord, we pray. So, Lord, tell us, Lord, tomorrow morning when we wake up, we Open our Bibles, Lord. Tell us what we need to hear, Lord. You know what we need. So, Lord, we pray for your grace. And we thank you for your mercy, Lord, every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.